Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. We've been spending quite a bit of time in the book of Philippians. And last week I spoke about the fact that we're citizens of heaven and Paul has some implications around that for us. If we're citizens of heaven, we need to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven, which then spoke about the unity and the importance of gathering together, being together as a people of God. In Philippians chapter 2, we read this really beautiful passage from verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. And kind of, we could just stop the sermon there and all go home and spend a week repenting. Do all things, and I guess the all things that God means there is probably all things. Maybe I should preach this to my children a little bit more, you know. Do all things without, yes, go to school without complaining and disputing. Yes, eat your broccoli without complaining and disputing. Yes, pay your taxes without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. I guess it's not too hard for us to walk out of a room like this or pick up a newspaper, just experience a little bit of life, go to a eatery afterwards and sit amongst people and listen to the stories and to realize we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It's not hard to find brokenness. It's not hard to find crookedness. It's not hard to find perversion, and the reality is all of us are crooked and perverse, but for the grace of God to redeem us. So if we're here this morning, and perhaps we're not as crooked as we used to be, not as perverse as we used to be, it's not because we are so good, and we are so great, and we've managed to redeem ourselves from a crooked and and perverse generation. It's because the Holy Spirit has breathed upon us, and the work of Christ on the cross has enabled and empowered us to come to a place where He heals and He restores. And as the healing and the restoration happens within us, then perhaps a little bit of the crookedness and the perversion gets removed. And I think it's important just as, an, sort of as we, we launch out into the message this morning to remind ourselves of that. And when we're speaking of a crooked and a perverse generation, it's not a we're better than situation. It is just a we have received more than situation. And so around us, there's a crooked and a perverse generation. And yet in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, you and I are meant to shine as lights. We used to sing this beautiful song in church. Some of you may have heard it. It was a really popular song years ago. And the, the bridge chorus phrase is, shine your light and let the whole world see the glory of the risen King. And we're singing that song to God and we're saying, God, would you shine your light in the midst of broken people? And it's so important to remember when we sing a song like that, as much as we are praying, crying out to God to shine His light and let the whole world see, I think God is looking back and saying, okay, I'm shining my light. Will you be my light? That's how I'm going to. If God is going to shine His light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, it's going to be through you and through me. Through us as believers. When I was a kid there, not as a kid, a kid in the faith, just came to Christ, we didn't have iTunes music, there was no kind of streaming service, those things were the realm of science fiction, and you were limited to the music that you heard on the radio, and most of us know there isn't too much Christian radio in South Africa, so the little bit that you could hear on the radio, and the CDs that your friends could get hold of, and there was this band that some CDs we got hold of and were listening to. And I love their name. The music wasn't bad, but their name probably was the most enjoyable of it. They called themselves Peculiar People. And that was based from an old translation, the New, it's not the New King James, the old King James of this passage here in 2 Corinthians 5. Either way, Christ's love controls us. And since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone. Sorry, I'm reading the wrong. Peculiar people wasn't this. It was First Peter. But this is the same principle here. 
He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How different we know him now. Paul speaking about knowing Christ. How different we know him now. We know that we don't see him through human eyes. We don't see him through human values. We don't see him through human experience. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And we read this normally in terms of our sin. And that's an important way in which to read this passage. The context does speak into that a bit as well. That kind of when we're in Christ, we become a new person. Our our old, and it's talking about our old life. It's talking about our sinfulness that washed away. But also the, the passages just before this says, That if I am a fool, and I'm Philip's translation, if I am a fool, then I am a fool for Christ. If I'm being silly in my action, that's for Christ. And if I'm being dignified and normal, then that's for you as people. That's what he says. So he's speaking about conduct. He's speaking about action. He's speaking about the peculiar lifestyle that he lives. For you and me as Christians, one of the first things that needs to settle in our hearts is that we In Christ, we become a new person. But that new person is a different person. It's a peculiar person. It's different to the world. And when we become new in Christ, then we're not deliberately different. And maybe let me put that out there as well. There's being different because I'm different. And there's being different because I'm obtuse. There's being different because just in my nature, naturally, I think different, I act different, I speak different. But then there's being different because I want to make a point. And when we talk about the church being countercultural, the church being different, the church not being the same as the world, it's not that as the church we are looking for things in the world that we get to make a point around to be different about and a bit difficult about. That's not what we're saying. It's like right here as you sit. You are unique, just like everybody else. We're all unique. You know, some arty people, and sort of if you've been involved in the arts and worked with people in the arts, there's this big lie that gets thrown at artists that in order for you really to express yourself, you have to be different. And the reality is if you've perhaps begun to step, you don't have to be different. You are already different. And what we see in the arts sometimes is People in this desire to be different, stepping out into more and more craziness because I need to be different. I can't be what the other people are doing, the way they're acting. And yet Christ has made you and me unique and individual and special. And for us, perhaps, to really be unique is when we embrace that, the who I am, the most, and we stop trying to be something else. And so as people who are different, as people who are unique, we're not trying to be countercultural. We just simply are countercultural. Not about everything in culture, but there are things in culture that are different to things in Christ. What I mean by that, I mean when we think about life, we don't think about life the way the world thinks. We don't value what the world values. We read that a lot at the beginning of the year. As Paul says, I used to think all of these things were gain, but now I have counted loss for the all-surpassing joy of knowing Christ. I think different to the way that I used to think. I don't value what I used to value. We don't see the world the way the world sees the world. When we become a new creation in Christ, some things inside of us should change. And that identity, that new kind of aligning ourselves with Christ is such an important part of the faith. That's one of the powers of baptism. It's that deliberate decision to say, I am choosing to align myself with Christ. I'm no longer following the way of the world. We sang it a little bit earlier. I'm deciding to follow Jesus, and it's something that's happened in my heart already. But I want to make an outward expression. I want something in my spirit even to realign with the fact that I'm no longer following the ways of the world. I'm following the ways of Christ. And that's the power of baptism. And we have way too many unbaptized Christians walking around. People who are still wanting to follow Christ but have not died to ourselves. Which is exactly what this passage is all about. And become new in Jesus. And in our newness in Christ, we should and we do think different, 
see different, hope different. And so with all of that as a, a little bit of, of a background, I want us just to cast our minds forward about a month from today when we're going to be going into halls, a lot like this one, some people may be in this very hall and casting a ballot and voting for our presidential, and we're going to look at that now, and our, well, not our presidential, strictly speaking, but our national and our provincial governments, and we're going to be voting and casting a vote in that, but one of the things that I want us to realize is as we're standing at that ballot box making a cross, we have to be different. If we're following Christ, we, we cannot make our cross, we cannot make our decision in the same way that the person standing next to us who's perhaps not following a Christ has come to their determination, their decision about what they're voting on. So I want us to take a little bit of time, and before we get sort of into the theology, kind of just going across the varsity, we're in the political science department, elections 101. Important for us just to spend a moment on this because it's going to help us to make an informed decision around our voting. Perhaps before we do that, I, maybe I should tell you which party you need to vote for. You need to open your Bible on page 358. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to page 358. Three of us have Bibles here. And then on page 358, the second paragraph, the first letter of the first three words, that's the acronym for some of us read the Bible that way. A while ago, about 10 or 15 years ago, there was this whole thing that there's this code hidden in the Bible. And that's the way that kind of God speaks to us. God doesn't speak to us that way. There isn't code hidden in the Bible that if we go to that page and we find the right letter and kind of we decipher the code, we know the will and the mind of God. That's not how it works. What we have to do is we have to engage with the Holy Spirit. We have to engage with the Word. We have to take the Word and wrestle with it and apply it in our lives in the situation. That's how God speaks to us. It's not some mystical, difficult code we have to try and decipher. The hard part about reading Scripture is not the reading Scripture part. It's the allowing it to change our hearts, to think different, to look different, to be different in that sense. So we live, as most of us probably know, in a constitutional democracy. That means we have a constitution which governs our democratic process. There is a a ground law, a constitution upon which all of the rest of our, our law and kind of the infrastructure, the way kind of our institutions are built upon a constitution. But then a democracy, and that comes from the Greek demos, meaning the people, and kratos, meaning power, as opposed to autocratic, as an example, which is an individual ruler ruling the whole thing. We're talking about democratic here, which means all of the people are in theory meant to rule together. Or as one of the early sort of democratic fathers phrased it, a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And that's sort of the underpin of democracy. The idea is that we are self-governing, not in an autocratic with an individual point of authority, but we are collectively self-governing our nation. And that's the whole idea behind democracy. But the reality is, we can't all engage in active governance all the time in a national sense. I mean, that would just be really awkward. We'd never get anything done. Can you imagine if we had a parliament of 14 million people who all want to say their say all the time? Some of us have sat in meetings with 10 people who all want to say their say all the time, and you never get anything done. So it's just totally impractical for all of us to, in every decision, collectively govern. So the idea behind democracy is I identify somebody, I appoint somebody to do it on my behalf. And that's what the whole election is about. Who are the people that we want to appoint to govern and make the decisions on our behalf? You also with me? Okay. It's important, just in the context where we are today, to also say democracy is not a biblical governance structure. What I mean by that? It's not unbiblical. It's not that it contradicts Scripture, but you won't find an election in this context. Election in Scripture is something totally different. But you won't find people coming to elect anyone or anything in Scripture. We don't find it in Scripture. It doesn't appear there. 
but I, I don't think that democracy contradicts Scripture. What we do find in Scripture normally is perhaps more of an autocratic type of rule, which is called a theocracy, where God appoints, and through the appointed agents, whether it is a king or a prophet or a judge, that is the way in which the majority of governance happens. And obviously there were elder system, systems in all of those as well. But be that as it may, the, democracy is definitely not a perfect system, but it is most likely the best of a whole bunch of broken systems. If someone has a better system, then we please do write the letter to Parliament. Um, it's not a perfect system, but it's a heck of a lot better than the majority of the, the other options that we have on the table in, in terms of governance. In South Africa, how election works is by what is known as a proportional representation system. Okay, that sounds really complicated. It's not so complicated. It's different to in the United States, and I'll explain what it is now. Let me first say what it's not. In the United States, where many of us sort of get our election and um, understanding of government from because of the movies we watch and maybe some of the media we see from time to time, the way it works there. And it's a little bit more complicated, but just to simplify kind of the net effect, is you go to the ballot box and you vote for a person. You vote in the last election for, you know, bad and worse. <laughs> they didn't have the best choice ever in the history of mankind. But you've got to vote for Trump or Clinton. That's the choice. And that, that's literally, you, you vote for an individual. You vote for a governor, which would be the equivalent of our premier, the governor of a state. You vote for the person, and the person runs a campaign, and you vote for the individual, and that individual is aligned to a party. And it's a winner-takes-all, or what they call first-past-the-post. So if you get 50% of the votes plus one, and the other one has got 50% of the votes minus one vote, that's enough. You just have to have just enough to win the election. And then the 49.9999%, sorry, because the 50.00001% has won. Okay. That is not the system we have in South Africa. We have a proportional representation system, which means a lot more that every vote can have a voice. So what happens in South Africa at the last election is we all go on a national level and we vote. And when we come to election in May month, you're going to have two ballots, if I understand correctly. And you're going to vote for a national government, and you're going to vote for a provincial government. And the municipal election happens off sequence with this election. So you'll remember uh, two years ago, we had an election, and there we voted for municipal government. But we're going to vote now for a provincial government and a national government, and it's two different votes. You can make the same vote. You don't have to. It's two different ballot papers. And what happens is we tally up across for the national vote across South Africa, all of the votes, and we see, okay, party A has got 40% of the votes, so they get 40% of the representation. Party B has got 20% of the votes, they get 20% of the representation. Small party F has got 2% of the votes, they get 2% of the representation. And that's the proportional representation principle. And it's a little bit of a complicated sum. We don't have to get into all of that. But the principle there is deliberate, and some people like it, some people don't like it, but it was deliberately decided upon to give every person a voice. Not necessarily every individual, but every grouping a voice. So practically in the last election, it took for every 45,000 votes that a party got, they got a representative in parliament. That sounds a lot, but it's not so much. For every 45,000 people who cast their name next to a specific party across anywhere in South Africa, they get a representation in Parliament. You with me? As a matter of fact, just the way the maths work, the lowest party that got a single seat last year, I can't remember which party it was, it was the ARC or on some weird party, they got 30,676 votes and that got them a seat in Parliament. So every party that got more than 30,676 votes got at least one seat in Parliament, but on average for the larger parties, every 45,000 votes you get a seat. Okay. 
me put this in here because I think it's important. There is a thinking, a way of perhaps even a little bit of a campaign going that says a vote for a smaller party is a wasted vote. That is a one of two things. Either it's at best a misunderstanding of the electoral system or it's a lie. There's, there's no truth to that. If you understand the electoral system we have in South Africa, the very point is that a vote for a smaller party actually gives that smaller party a voice. That's the whole way in which our system was designed. It was designed from our background as South Africa with just the rainbow nation, a whole bunch of different people coming together. We want to be a democracy. We want to have an inclusive leadership. We want to have all people represented. So they designed when the writers of the Constitution came together, they deliberately chose a system that would give the best opportunity for representation for a variety of, of views and parties, etc., etc. Does that make sense? Okay. A little bit more just on, on Elections 101, just for interest sake. Provincially, it was a little bit more in Gauteng. It was about 55,000, I'm sorry, 58,000 votes per seat. Um, but anyway, the values aren't so important for us this morning. But what is very important, what I do want to emphasize, we do not vote for an individual in South Africa. We vote for a party, and the party appoints representatives to act on their behalf. You may remember that in the last 10 years, maybe a little bit more, last 12 years or so, we've had three presidential changes, and not one of them was around an election. Thabo Mbeki thought he was president. Then the, it's not the electorate that decided he wasn't president anymore. It was his party who decided he wasn't president anymore. And then Jacob Zuma was president. And then once again, it wasn't the Kalema Maklante was in the interim sort of between them. But then Zuma was president. And then it wasn't the electorate who decided he wasn't president anymore. It was the party who decided he's not president anymore. And that's very important for us in South Africa. Because we may see an individual we really like. But understand that your vote is not for the individual because if the party decides they want to go in a different direction, they just move, remove the individual. Does that make sense? Okay. So I think that's enough about Elections 101. That's just a little bit of a basic in terms of where we're going. So I think it's important and why I want us to have just spend a few moments this morning looking at this. I think it's really important for the church to give leadership in the area of making a decision about if and how and who do I vote? If the church isn't giving leadership on this, then where are we hearing? Where are we getting in? Who is helping us to make our decisions? Probably the largest and the loudest speaking agents in the world. My aim this, this morning is very definitely not to give you the name of a party that I think you should vote for. It's not where I'm wanting to go with this. What I do want us to do is hopefully to stimulate conversation amongst ourselves. I think it would be a really good conversation as believers, to have healthy conversation around politics. I believe we should. You know, when we were kids, we were told that you don't talk about religion and politics. And yet those are two of the most defining things in our lives. And we don't talk about them, we don't get, and we've never learned to engage constructively and well around them. Conversations with each other, and perhaps even more importantly, I want to hopefully stimulate some conversations between you and God. For you to go sit and wrestle with God and say, God, how best when I make my cross do I represent your cross in making my cross? How best do I do that? So four steps that I believe for us as Christians in terms of engaging with the political process. First one, Jeremiah 29 verse 7. I've got a different translation up there, I think. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For in its welfare, or its welfare will determine your welfare. And that's not the New King James, that's the New Living Translation. Apologies for that. Work for the peace of the city, the prosperity of the city, because in its welfare, and pray for it. Because in its welfare, you will have welfare. Can I just put out there as well? There have been very few times in Christian history in human history, sort of since Christ came, that there has been a legitimate Christian government leading people. There have been very, very few times where that has happened. 
as a rule, as a whole, the vast majority of Christians who've ever lived on this planet and are alive or have been alive and will ever be alive and are alive will be under the rule of a secular government or at least a non-Christian government. That's still the case today. It's very clearly the case in South Africa and it's the majority of the world case. I'm not aware of any government in the world that is truly, authentically a Christian government at this moment in time. So we're all a little bit in exile. We're all a little bit serving under a government we don't want to serve under. And in exactly in that context is where this message comes from. Still pray for them. Still seek the peace. Build as best as you can to the place where you are. It's given here to people who've literally been carried away. The people of Israel have been carried in bondage. And the word for them in their bondage is not, hey, I'm going to give you new leaders. It's not, hey, I'm going to release you immediately. The word for them in their bondage is pray for where you are at. Because even in your bondage, you can have welfare connected to the city within which you find yourself. Does that make sense? Step one, pray. I want to encourage us to pray. Pray collectively, pray together, but pray privately. I wonder how many of us have been spending time in our private sort of prayer flow, prayer rhythm, spending time praying for our country, praying for the city where we live. First Timothy chapter 2, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them, and we should do that, obviously. But watch this. Pray this way for kings. And all who are in authority, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives, marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. You and I, we should be praying for our leaders. We should be praying for kings and all who are in authority. We should not so much be criticizing our leaders as much as we should be praying for our leaders. I'm not saying that we can't voice Objections, I'm not saying that we can't have a voice as, as Christians, as either individuals or collectively, but it has to come birthed and started from a place where we're committed to praying and seeking the best. I love how the message translation or paraphrase more correctly, and I want to just put this in here on purpose. As much as I love what's written here, I want to remind us that the message is not a translation of Scripture. It is a paraphrase of Scripture. So read the message. It's great. But I'd encourage you, perhaps read the message in the same way you would read a commentary. It's an opinion on what the text says. It's not the text. And all paraphrases, something like the Passion, which is called the translation, but that's a misnomer, the one that's doing the rounds in certain circles. Now, it's not a Passion translation. It's a paraphrase of Scripture. And we should read it at best like a commentary. The first thing I want you to do is pray. Pray every way you know how for everyone you know. Pray especially for rulers and their governments to rule well so we can be quietly about our business of living simply in humble contemplation. This is the way our Savior God wants us to live. Step one is pray. I want to invite you the Friday night before the election. There's going to be a prayer evening at the union buildings. Go and pray. Be there to pray together for the elections. Call it gap night, and we'll give you more information about that a little bit later. And a couple of years ago, we had a really great gap night there, and something we haven't done in the last few years. But let's get together and, and pray for the city. Pray for our nation, as God instructs us to do. So step one, as a Christian, there's an election along the, down the line. What is the first thing that we should probably do as Christians? I think we should pray. Step one. Step two, I honestly believe we should engage constructively with the political and the governance process. And for the election coming up now, this is probably a little bit late. But I want to put this principle out there anyway. We see an example in the book of Daniel. Daniel, who was a believer. Daniel, who would not bow his knee before any other god. But watch the position that he held in the secular government. This is the king speaking. He says, at last, Daniel came in before me and I told him the dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God. Can we just pause there quickly? The king calls this man, and he actually gives him the name of his God. Now, I wonder how many of us would be comfortable with that. How many of us would quit our jobs because my boss calls me whatever he calls his God? 
And yet Daniel seemed very comfortable with that. Perhaps not privately on the inside. He probably said, God, you know this. But he was not, he didn't quit from his position because he was in a place around ungodly people and who were treating him in that context, kind of making an idol of him. Watch this. And the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Some of our translations say the spirit of the holy God. I actually went and looked at the original text and the, the common understanding is the holy gods. This is a king speaking who does not have a revelation of our holy God. But he says there is something precious and special and unique upon Daniel's life. There's a spirit, there's something different upon Daniel. Daniel is not a normal guy. I said to him, Belteshazzar, watch this, chief of the magicians. What was Daniel's role? Daniel, this man who would not bow his knee to any other god, so much so that he was thrown in the lion's den to be eaten by lions because he wouldn't bow to another god. The position that he held was chief magician. I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. And then he gives him a dream a little bit later. In Daniel chapter 5, there's a different king. Now who's king? And... Some of his advisors come to him and says, there is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have, have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all of the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and the fortune tellers of Babylon. So if you got an email from Daniel, that would have been his signature at the bottom. Chief magician, head of astrology, enchantment, and fortune telling in Babylon. That is what would be written on his business card. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the right answer is. Here is a man who is following God. So much so that he's willing to lay his life down for God. Literally. And yet, he's being used in a secular government, in a secular position, to represent Christ. To bring about the deliverance for that people. I believe, you know, as a church, sometimes my heart really breaks for us as a church. Because I see something happening in government, and then there's the petition online, and then we must all sign this online petition, and hey, maybe I'm missing something, but I've never seen a petition work. Maybe I've missed it, maybe it's been there, I haven't seen it. And then the church is up in arms, and now we must all sign this petition, and I sort of want to put my hand up and be just a little bit different and difficult and say, guys, we're too late. We shouldn't be throwing the tantrum now, when the law kind of is on the books, where were we when we started speaking initially about the law? When the law was being drafted, when the decision was being made, why didn't we have Christians there helping to make that decision? I think it's a little bit because as Christians, we don't engage with the political governance democratic process really well. We've got some great friends, and I'm trying to get them actually to come and share with us one Sunday who started an organization called Cause for Justice. I'd encourage you to go onto Facebook a little bit and just see some of the incredible work that they have been doing and continue to do, engaging properly as Christians in the democratic process. Being a voice of light, being a shining light in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. But it's a, deli a deliberate decision, as lawyers mostly, they made to engage with the process. I want to encourage us, let us engage. We can look at, throughout Scripture, there are a number of other followers of God, seriously committed followers to God, and I really don't like this watch today. Um, followers of God who are committed to Christ, like Joseph, like Esther, who brought about significant change by being key leaders in a secular government. Avoid in South Africa, we do not have enough in the world. We don't have enough people truly speaking on 
behalf of Christ. We need to be there where it matters, both privately and publicly. So I want to encourage you, it's a little bit too late for this election, obviously. Some of us may be called to, to politics, get involved there. But for the rest of us, be willing to serve in a residence, Harkon, the SRC on campus, your school governing body. If you've got children in a school, be part of the process. Don't be on the outside complaining about the ungodliness that's happening on the inside if you're not willing to be in the inside to shine the light, to be the difference. Okay. And then the point where we really want to get to this morning. Make your vote count. How do I make a decision about making my vote? Proverbs 29 verse 2 tells us when the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked are in power, they groan. And I'm sure all of us at some stage in our life have had a moment like this where we've groaned because of leaders that have been wicked, that have not been upright. There are a variety of factors that could drive your voting decision. Your heritage, your history, there where you come from, perhaps. Maybe financial or economic issues. Maybe fear. I want to put a different one out there for us. What if, as believers, we went to the ballot box and did not vote based on my heritage or my history? I did not vote based upon fear. I did not vote based upon economical or financial considerations. I made a vote based upon the values that are important to me. World politics has sort of taken a turn a little bit sadly to my mind that we are not in a place where if we were to talk about which party in South Africa, this is not the rhetoric, this is not what we hear, that hey, these are the five key problems in South Africa. Who has the best plan suggestion process that we are going to address these five key areas. That's not what we hear when we hear political conversation in South Africa. That's not what we see on the posters. We don't have politics based upon policies. We've moved into a realm internationally, it's not just South Africa, where politics has become profoundly identity-based. The question is not who is going to help to take South Africa within our context, forward. That's not the question that the world is asking. The question that the world is asking when they engage with political decision is who is going to do best for my people. And we see that, don't we? That's what's on the posters. That's the, that's the rhetoric we hear. Identify with who are the people that I identify with most because those are the people that I'm going to vote. They're, they're the people who are going to look after my interests, sort of is the way that the thinking goes. I don't believe that that's the way God would have us vote. We'll share about that in a moment. I think a good question that we need to ask is, what country do we want to live in? What country do I want to live in? And for us that are parents and we're getting to think in this, it's not so much only what country do I want to live in, but what is the country that I want my kids to live in? What do I want this country to look like that I'm raising my children in? Andy Stanley has this really powerful but really simple principle. He calls it the principle of the path. Simply says this, your direction, not your intention, will determine your destination. I don't get where I want to go. I get to where I'm going. The direction I'm on, that's going to determine where I'll end up. It's not the where I want to end up. And sometimes we look at the sort of our, and we got, I, I want to end up there but my direction is taking me there. We say, it doesn't matter that my direction is going here. My intention is taking me this way. And we think in some supernatural way, I'm going to end up over there. But my direction is clearly taking me in a different direction. Does that make sense? Looking at South Africa, looking at the ballot box, we need to make some hard decisions. We need to say, what do I want this country to look like? So we don't vote for individuals. We've established that in South Africa. So the number one thing that you can throw out in your de decision-making is personal character becomes irrelevant. It does not help us looking at any individuals in terms of our making our decision-making. What is important is organization, culture, and party policies. They become crucial. So some of us say, I really like this person in this party. I say, that's fantastic. You're allowed liking the person in the party. Pray for them, encourage them, send them text messages. But the reality is when it comes to decision making, their personal view is largely irrelevant. 
their personal view doesn't make a difference. For me, as an example, there are a bunch of Christians in most of the major parties. But it'll be interesting to hear that they don't stand up and make Christian pronouncements. Because they are limited. They may be in a, in a private setting, maybe in a church setting, maybe when it's election season in church, and they make it public because they want the church to vote for them. But they're not going to make public decisions for Christ if it's against the party's policy. The party policy is always going to overrule the private individual. And if the private individual doesn't want to play along with a party decision, the party can very simply just remove the private individual. We cannot vote for individuals. Sadly, in South Africa, we want to be drawn a little bit to personality cults, to a sort of, to use a sort of extreme word. We build up these big political personalities, but they can be gone like this, and our vote remains with the party, not with the person. So what's far more important than the individual is what is the organization, what is the party's policy? What is the organizational culture? And the only way for you to know this, and this is perhaps the bad news for you today, is we need to do some homework. You actually have to go and sit and make a list and say, what are the things that are most important to me in South Africa? What are the things that to me are most important? Well, for me, it's really easy. We kill roughly in the region of 200,000 of the most vulnerable members of society every single year. Carrying on today and tomorrow, it's going to carry on. 200,000 of the most defenseless individuals in our country we kill every single year. And I don't hear anybody saying anything about that. Or not quite anybody, but very few people are saying anything about that. And for me, the party that's going to put their hand up, you know, if my dustbins are a little bit late, they don't get picked up on Tuesday, but they got picked up on Wednesday, but we're saving 200,000 people who are not getting killed this year, hey, I'm okay with that. That's just where I am. I don't mind my dustbin being picked up a little bit late. Service delivery is important, but for me, there are far more important things. Some of the big legislation at the moment now is they don't want our children to be able to pray in schools. That, for me, is more important than whether my dustbin gets picked up on time or not. Do I have the liberty to send my child to a school where they can pray before class? Where they're not going to get kicked out of school if they want to pray? Am I able to send my child to a school where they don't get taught about that sex is okay, and here I just take a condom from eight years old. And these sound harsh things, but this is the reality of our schooling system today. That for me is far more important than whether, you know, we've got load shedding an hour a day. You know, I can deal with the load shedding. It's not ideal, it's not perfect. If it has to be a choice, just where I'm at, you don't have to be there. There are things to me that are more important than some of the loud election issues. We need to sit down. You need to sit down and say, what are the most important things for me? And then you need to do some homework and say, well, what do the different people say about these things that to me are important? Is freedom of religion important? Sadly, if freedom of religion is important to you, you can scratch out the four largest parties in South Africa very easily because it's not important to one of them. All of them are deliberately working against freedom. Us just meeting here today, it's the stated goals of the majority of our larger parties, to close this down. Because we're meeting in a public school that belongs to the government. They don't want this stuff. That's the stated goal of the majority of our parties. For me, this is a big issue. Far more important than some service deliveries. I'm not saying the service delivery thing is unimportant. Don't misunderstand me. But there's a, a priority of, of importance that we need to consider. You need to make a values vote. Would be my contention. And we'll look at some points on scripture as we do that. But you'll also vote according to who you most identify with. We're in a stage where identity politics has become so important that all of the parties, whether they want to or not, have to embrace some part. Who is it that we are actually representing? It's not a what are we representing. We've moved away from that and we've moved to who am I representing? Who am I representing? And it's not hard in most of the parties to just Listen to kind of the first line of half of their speeches and you'll know exactly who it is they're wanting to represent. So who will you identify with? Who will you vote for? Most likely you are going to vote for those or the party, the people that you most identify with. In other words, where your strongest 
allegiance like? We can flip that around a little bit. The party that you are naturally inclined immediately, if you were to vote today, most inclined to vote for, that is the people, that is the party to whom you have the strongest sense of identity. In that context, your vote reveals your allegiance. So if you want to know who you kind of politically, kind of who you align with, if I had to vote today, who would I vote? I'd vote for them. Okay, so those are the people that I identify with most. Okay, go to my prayer closet. God, are these the people that I should identify with most? Maybe yes, maybe no. But let's at least ask. I I believe, I honestly believe, when I make my cross on the ballot box, I make a decision to appoint somebody to speak on my behalf. We're all comfortable. That's the whole principle of democracy. I believe that I will be accountable before God for the decisions that person has made on my behalf. I cannot say I voted for that party and they made it. I didn't agree with them at all, but I voted for them. I believe God's going to hold us before say and say, but I'm going to hold you accountable for the decisions that people made on your behalf. It's a bit of a heavy one, I know, but I, I honestly believe that. I don't think we can say, God, I voted for these people and they committed all these atrocities. Just If we just kind of happen to just dramatize it for a moment. They committed all of these atrocities and I, the next election came and I kept voting for them. You know, if, kind of, if it's an unknown, I didn't know that was going to happen. Shucks, I can't take my vote back. You know, that, that's one thing. But I, I continue to go with the people who are walking against what I believe Christ would have happened. I believe Christ would ask us to explain that. I believe, can I get heavy with us for a moment? That we're going to stand before Jesus one day, and he's going to ask us about the 200,000 most vulnerable that are murdered every single year in our society, and he's going to say, how did you, maybe, I just sense God's going to ask me if I've been, and praise the Lord I haven't been. How did you continue to support people, to vote for people, to put people in power who allowed that? How did you do that? Those 200,000 babies that are lying there that are dead, Philip, that were murdered, there's blood on your hands. Because you weren't willing to stand up and say, no, this is unacceptable. On, and, and that for me, just a major election issue. That same principle carries through to everything else that happens in government. Because I elect them to speak on my behalf. They're acting as my ambassador, as my representative. I am responsible for what they're doing. And that's the idea of an election. If they're doing something that I don't like that they are doing, it is my democratic duty to change my vote and say, I cannot support what you are doing anymore. And that's what makes it a little bit hard and real for us as Christians when it comes to elections. I cannot just vote with who I identify with most if I disagree with what they're doing because I believe God is going to hold me accountable. And so I don't know if I put it up there, but I want to say that we sang it a little bit earlier. I want to say it again. You will have few opportunities in this life to demonstrate your allegiance to Christ, your devotion to Christ, as clearly as at an election. Where you get to physically make a mark to say, I am choosing for righteousness and for justice. I am making a decision based on what I believe are the important factors to God in this country. So, what I would love for us, there are a few more things I'm going to share, but I would love for us is by the time we walk into the hall that you're going to be voting in, you walk in there with the confidence, with the boldness, saying, Jesus, today I'm your ambassador. It is no longer I who lie. I've become part of a, a new people. The Bible calls us a new race, literally. That's the wording that gets used. I'm making a decision, Jesus, that's going to represent you in the best way possible in this nation. And I'm doing it with confidence and I'm doing it with boldness. Because, hey, what's today? Today is, we have a date. The 14th. Just un- make it three, three weeks, three and a half weeks. I've spent the last three and a half weeks praying about this, searching the scriptures. And Jesus, when I make my cross, I know I'm representing you well. That's what I would love. A lot more than whatever we choose, I would love us to be able to say, I am convinced that this is what God wants me to do with my vote. For the sake of this nation, 
and for His glory. You will have as few, you have very few opportunities to demonstrate your devotion to Christ as clearly as at an election. Jesus, I identify most with you, or I identify most with the economic, financial, heritage, whatever background it might be that I'm coming from and making my decision. I want to put another verse up here for us. Matthew 6, 31 to 33. How would this apply in election? So don't worry about these things. What are these things? Saying what we will eat, what we will drink, what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and He will give you everything you need. At what stage does Matthew 6.33 no longer apply? At, not, at what stage do we as Christians stop worrying or start worrying about the things of this world and stop trusting God? I don't believe that stage ever comes. I think I might have put it up the notes there. When finance wins out over morality, I believe everybody ends up broke. When finance wins out over morality, everybody ends up poorer. I don't want to be, hey, this is just me. I don't want to be in the richest nation, in the richest suburb, with the richest people. But all of us are totally immoral. And the scripture says something like that. I would rather dwell in the courts of our God than live in the tent of foreign, of the princes. I think better is a little bit with health and with the right people, with righteousness, than kind of big feasts, and I'm paraphrasing now, but that's the principle, than big feasts and wealth with the unrighteous. Proverbs teaches us that. I choose to hold on to that. Last point about voting, and then one more point, and then we're done. Make your vote an act of faith, not an act of fear. A little bit of what we're wanting to hear coming through the election, narr election narrative and that kind of is just going to pick up as we get closer to the election day. There's going to be just a lot more rhetoric, a lot more being said, a lot more trying to influence, and a lot of it is going to be fear-based. Fear and faith both ask the same question. They both ask what could happen. Fear asks what could happen if this goes wrong. What could happen if this goes wrong? That's fear. Well, I must vote for this party because what if it goes wrong in the other party? That's faith. Faith says, what could happen if this goes right? What could happen if God breathes over this? What could happen? What could happen? First Peter 2, verse 17, the last point. First thing we should do as Christians is we should pray. The second thing we should do is we must engage with the democratic process. That's an ongoing thing. That's not an election thing. Third thing, when it comes to election, we should make our vote count. Proportional representation. I can appoint somebody to speak on my behalf. Voting in that context for a smaller party, if, second extreme, maybe the biggest, most important thing to me in my life, I'm going to be totally ludicrous now, but is I want, I think every single person in South Africa should plant a mango tree in their garden. That is the thing that is the most important to me. You know, if we can find 45,000 people who have, or in the last election, 34,000 people who think that is the most important thing on this earth right now, we can have somebody for us speaking in parliament, and every time a point comes up, they can say, but how are we going to plant a mango in that tree? And every decision that gets made, they're asking, how are we planting a mango in that tree? That's the point of proportional representation. If we make a value base and we can find somebody on that ballot who I think can represent me well, what does that mean? That means that every time a decision comes on the table, every time something needs to be spoken about, there's going to be somebody saying, but what about? Can we add this? Somebody speaking on my behalf. I need to find somebody in my vote who I think, or a party, not an individual, who I think represents me best. The fourth point. So we need to pray, we need to 
engage, we need to vote well, and the fourth point is we need to res respect the outcome. 1 Peter 2 verse 17, respect everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and respect the king. Whoever is the king, the leader, the authority of this nation, our duty as believers is to respect him. 1 Samuel chapter 8, and don't have time, I know our time is up, I'm almost done. What's just happened here is the people of Israel had a prophet leading them. They put up their hand and say, no, 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 we don't want to be led. We, the nations all around us have a king. We want the king. Samuel said that's a really bad idea. They say, we don't care. We want the king. So Samuel was displeased with, displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. God said to them, do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they're rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. And let's keep that in mind that whatever the decision is, if people are not voting for the party, kind of that whatever, if it's a party we believe represents Christ's be Christ best, then if people don't want him as their king, you don't get upset about it. But what Samuel's response, I love this, 12 verse 23, as for me, I will certainly not sin against the Lord by ending my prayers for you. I will continue to teach you what is good and right. And this is in the context, if you guys have a king, it's a really bad idea. We've chosen party, whoever. It's a really bad idea. But hey, I'm not going to sin against you. If I stop praying for you and stop communicating what I believe God would have us communicate. That's our response as believers. We're going to continue to do what is right in the, God's, in the eyes of God. We're going to continue to follow Samuel, to teach what is good and right, even if the government wants to go in a different direction. Does that encourage you a little bit this morning? Hopefully give you something to chew on, to pray about, to think through. I think most of us probably have a little bit of homework to go and do. But I want to end with another passage from Daniel. You know, sometimes people hear and say, okay, Philip, so we've got this great thing. We want to plant mangoes in every garden. Would having one person in parliament speaking about mangoes all the time really make a difference? Does it really make a difference if it's just one? If they can just be outvoted all the time? My answer to that is, if the Spirit of God breathes on them, then yes. If it's somebody who God has put there as a voice of reason, as a voice of conscience, even if it's just one, you know, that's one. If it can be two or three or ten or fifty, even better. But even if it's just one. Watch this example. King uh, David, Daniel again with King Nebuchadnezzar. Watch this response. One man in the whole kingdom. There were the three friends as well. We know about them. Shad, Mishan, Abe, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We know about them. But they've sort of become a, a distant, they're still doing great work. But Daniel's the guy who God's really breathed on. The spirit of the living God is in him. The people looked around at him and say, the spirit of the gods, this guy's different. He's anointed. He's empowered by God to do what he's doing. Watch what Daniel says, what the king says, because of one man. Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, sorry, I'm flipping the story here. These three guys, not Daniel. I just dissed these guys. No, no. They've just been in, in the fire. No, they're not the, yeah, the fire. And they came out and they don't even smell like smoke. And the king looks up and he says, he sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Now watch this. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They will be torn from limb, torn limb from limb. Their houses will be burned into heaps of rubble because there is no other God who can rescue like this. There were three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were willing to be different, who were willing to say, we're not doing what everyone else is doing. We're not thinking what everyone else is thinking. We're not following what everyone else is thinking. We're different. We have been made new. We're different. That was enough for a whole kingdom to bring glory to God. That was enough for a king to make an instruction to say, nobody is ever allowed saying one word bad against this God. 
just somebody who was willing to stand up and make a difference. Maybe just one person, two persons, three people who are willing, can I put willing, and have the license, because within our political system that's important, who are willing to stand up and have the license to stand up and to say this is wrong, because I believe Scripture says it's wrong. And the sad reality is, the majority of our parties don't give that license. They make a party decision and everyone has to make the party choice and follow the party line. Two or three or five or ten or fifteen people willing to stand up and say, we speak on behalf of a constituency, that's why we're here. We have a right to stand up and you have to listen to us for a moment as we tell you why we think this is right or what you're doing is wrong. We want to be a voice on behalf of the people that have voted for us. We can make a difference. And when God breathes on that one voice, it's a lot easier for God to breathe on one voice than a no voice. It's a lot easier when one person stands up and makes an appeal to conscience for God to do something about that than when no one is standing up and making an appeal to conscience. Can we imagine, just as we close, can we imagine, we said 45,000 roughly, can we imagine if all of us as followers of Jesus, when it came to this election, were to stand up and say, we are going to vote for the party or a party or the string of parties, whatever it may be, who we believe is most likely to pursue the purposes of God for this nation. Imagine what our nation would look like, what our parliament would look like. We're meant to be 80% Christian. Our parliament is not 80% Imagine if we were to stand up and have a party led by people, have a parliament led by people, inspired by people who are willing to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Imagine what that could look like. Can we stand together? I want to pray. Jesus, this morning, Lord, we just stand again, Lord, amazed at your goodness. Lord, we... We realize that when you died on the cross and you made us new, you totally did change us. And you brought us into a new people, a holy nation, your own special people, a peculiar people. We're different. But we have decided to follow you, Jesus, and there's no turning back. And so I pray for us, Lord. I, I pray that as we go from here, as we head into these next few weeks, Lord, preparing for this election, I pray, Holy Spirit, for every one of us that are eligible to vote here in South Africa, that you would give us such clarity around who and where and how, where to make our cross, how to make our cross count for your cross, Jesus. Jesus, we, we want to just again anew declare our allegiance to you. We're followers of you. Lord, we're not followers of some political party. Lord, we're not pawns even being used and abused. We are led by you in victory in every circumstance. So we pray for our nation. We pray for peace. We pray for godly leadership to arise. We pray for the church to arise in this nation. Lord Jesus, that we would engage constructively with the democratic process, that we would be the voice, Lord God, in the right place at the right time, not wait to the end so we can get upset about the outcome, Lord, that we can be determinants in the outcome. Right from the outset, bringing life and hope and truth. And God, I pray that as the church, you would lead us to vote well, to vote on your behalf, to vote not according to the ways of the world, human ways, that we wouldn't consider the things that the world considers. We would consider the things you would have us consider. That Jesus, you would show us what they may be. And Lord, I pray for every one of us here, God. I pray perhaps if someone here this morning, maybe you here this morning, and you're still struggling with this identity thing. You know, you, you have decided to follow Jesus, but you, you love that idea and you want to, but the hard part about you is you realize it means that there's some stuff you're going to have to unfollow. You know, you want to keep following Jesus, but you also want to follow money, or you want to keep following Jesus, but you also want to follow heritage morning, if that's you and you want to make a decision again, just to say, Jesus, I'm following you. 
It might include a whole bunch of my heritage that comes along, but there's some stuff I'm going to step away from. It might include your incredible provision in my life, but there's some provision I'm going to have to be willing to let go, Lord Jesus, because I'm choosing to follow you. This morning, if that's you, I want to just invite you as we close now. You're welcome to step forward. We'd love to pray with you, to pray for you. Allow God to settle that in your heart. Maybe you're here and you've never been baptized. I'm not talking about being sprinkled as a child. It's not baptism in any sense of the word. Baptism is a deliberate decision to lay down your life towards Christ and to stand up with Him. And the image that Scripture gives us is about being taken under water and being raised again to new life as we stand up out of the water. Perhaps you've never been baptized. I want to invite you. Take that step. Be bold. Come and speak to me or your small group facilitator. Any other believer and say, listen, I need to be baptized because I'm deciding to follow Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria.